Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People Like You and Me. And this is the Thanksgiving weekend edition, season two, episode three, where we're following along the life of King David, primarily uh, through the Psalms. Today, we're going to be using Psalm 142 and also the first two verses of 1 Samuel 22. You might want to turn there before we get started, if you're able. While you're doing that, just a reminder, I hope to post uh, one more podcast for this season on David and have it drop later this week because I'm having double knee surgery on Wednesday and I'm going to take a break for a while after that. Appreciate your prayers. Uh, I'll need to be focusing in on my rehab for a little while, so we'll start season three in the new year and that's going to be called Singing the Blues and we're going to do a walk through the book of Ecclesiastes together. So let's get ourselves ready for Psalm 142 and the theme, Don't Go It Alone. One of the things I'm learning as I get older is that life can be very fragile. Things can change in a heartbeat. I mean, literally. You're sort of cruising down the highway of life and then out of nowhere, wham, you get hit by something unexpected and it knocks you for a loop an unexpected diagnosis the loss of a loved one a friendship that ends your company goes through another quote-unquote reorganization and you get laid off through no fault of your own physically emotionally economically things can turn on a dime like frank sinatra used to croon that's life riding high in april shot down in may and if you've been hammered like that it's normal to feel like god is absent It's normal to feel like, you know, you've been abandoned without any sense of God's presence or protection. It's easy to feel like your prayers kind of go straight through to heavenly voicemail. Well, in this season of Gospel Wabi Sabi, we're walking through parts of the life of David. And you might think that David, you know, is just this man who's blessed by God, and therefore he shouldn't be subject to the same ups and downs as the rest of us, that, you know, he's got one of the most pivotal Uh, places of of leadership and prestige in the Old Testament. He's the author of the majority of the Psalms. I mean, how can he be lumped into the category of people with serious problems? Well, there is a point where David's life hits rock bottom, when he was in deep trouble and struggled to make any sense of his faith in God, a place where he felt like he didn't fit with God anymore. To understand his story, we're going to go back a little bit in biblical history Because after the people of Israel came out of slavery in Egypt under Moses, that was about 1500 BC, they then conquered the promised land under Joshua. And then for several hundred years, they were ruled by a loose collection of populist leaders called judges. But about 1050 BC, the people decided they wanted to be like the other nations around them who were all ruled by kings. And handsome Saul was the people's choice to be their first king. But it wasn't long before King Saul disobeyed God in a big way, and God decided to remove him from the throne. God instructs the prophet Samuel to privately anoint David as the next king, and we looked at that in one of the previous episodes. Remember, David was just a young shepherd boy from Nowheresville, but he's got a big heart for God. David gets his first public notice when he kills the over seven-foot-tall Philistine giant Goliath in one-on-one combat. After that victory, David is brought into King Solomon's service. 
In short order, he becomes best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And David is given a wife, one of King Saul's daughters. And you can see David is getting a little too enmeshed in Saul's life. He gains popularity with the people as a brilliant military leader, as a gifted poet, a gifted musician. And as David's popularity grows, that just chews away at King Saul's soul like an old dog gnawing on a bone. Jealousy poisons Saul's mind. He becomes paranoid, certifiable, crazy. Saul concocts several schemes to have David killed. And finally, his jealousy turns to open hatred and David has to flee for his life. So David's life was going in one direction and that was downhill. In fact, as we read about his life in 1 Samuel 22, he had bottomed out. He was on the run with a price on his head. He had gone from being King Saul's favorite apprentice to the top of Saul's list of losers. He went from having his photo on the cover of People magazine to see his face on a wanted dead or alive poster. In a quick series of events, David lost his job. So now he's just an unemployed soldier with no veterans benefits. He lost his wife. She went home to be with daddy. He lost his home. He lost his mentor, Samuel, who died while all this was going on. He lost his closest friend, Jonathan. And finally, he lost his self-respect because we're sold in 1 Samuel 21 that David tried to find refuge with one of Saul's enemies, King Achish, I guess believing that old saying that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, as we've discovered in Iraq and Afghanistan, that isn't necessarily true. Turns out Achish was also out to get David. In 1 Samuel 21, 13, we're told, so David pretended to be insane in their presence, and while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. So just picture that for a moment. David had to pretend that he was insane, talking gibberish, dribbling saliva down his cheeks and his beard, scratching up the furniture like a bad house cat. This wasn't just some plot twist in an action movie. This really happened. And he's drooling down his beard like a patient in a mental ward. Can you imagine thing, anything more humiliating for David? Then, then, when Ach, then he, he barely escapes from Achish, and he flees into the rocky wilderness of the Jordan. And he's alone, and he's just kind of barely moving, and he comes to this cave called Adullam. And this is the lowest point of David's entire life. David had a lot of losses that he was dealing with, a lot of grief lost his position, his wife, his home, his sense of safety, and all the rest. And all that loss, all that grief had really drained him. All the things he had counted on for emotional support and his sense of, of self, they were all gone. So in the cave of Adullam, he had no hope that anything would ever get any better. He had nowhere else to go. He's mentally exhausted, physically empty, emotionally wrung out, he has absolutely got nothing left. Every ounce of emotional stability had been squeezed out of him. Can you sense his kind of loneliness in that desolate spot, in the damp darkness of the cave? If you want to know how he really felt, you just have to read the song he composed about it. We now call that song Psalm 142. Let me read it for us. Psalm 142, a masculine song of David when he was in a cave, a prayer. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him. Before him, I tell him my trouble. 
When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who know my way. In the path where I walk, men have hidden a snare for me. Look to my right and see, no one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Did you hear David's struggle? Can you sense his loneliness? He's lost literally everything. But in the middle of all that he has lost, David has not lost sight of God. He desperately cries out to the Lord to deliver him. In this psalm, we get a glimpse of David's heart, his inner character, that deep place in his soul that only God can see. There is an inner will, a tenacity, a perseverance. He cannot give up. He just can't do it. He's holding on by his fingernails, but he can't simply throw in the towel on God, no matter how bad the situation has begun. A lesser man would have drowned himself in booze or self-pity. A lesser man would have gotten lost in a sea of depression or even considered suicide. David is barely holding on. David had been beaten down, all the way down, but David kept looking up. He had been beaten all the way down until there was nowhere else to look but up. And when he looked up, God was there. David was brought to a place where God began to shape him for a new beginning. He was brought quite literally to nothing. And it was there that God began to redirect his life. Have you ever been that low? I know some folks who have been that low because I've talked with them about it. I know some of you might be there or near that point right now where there is nothing left but God. God may be working in you to bring you to a new beginning today as you look up to him. So here David is broken, crushed in spirit, physically and mentally exhausted. So how does God answer his prayer? Well, in a very unlikely way, let's pick up the story where David escapes from King Achish in 1 Samuel 22, starting with verse 1, where it says this, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. So God brings other people alongside of David to help him with his new beginning. David's transformation from a frightened fugitive into a formidable leader wasn't going to happen in isolation. It didn't happen alone. He needed a company of the committed. He needed a band of brothers. And there's a key truth here that we can see in Scripture because often a new beginning can only happen in the context of community. And that's something that our modern age doesn't really seem to indicate for Christians. A lot of Christians think you just have to be by yourself in isolation, but actually God's healing often only happens in the context of Christian community. God uses the people around you to bring healing and hope. Trying to fly solo, trying to go through life on your own with no connections, no commitments to others, Friends, that is not God's way. Real hope happens best 
in a group experience where in a circle of God's mercy, you feel openly accepted and empathetically understood. Let me say that again. A group experience where you feel openly accepted and empathetically understood in the circle of Christ's love. Real change often happens in community, not in isolation. So who does God bring to his side? Look who comes to join him first. It's his family. Folks, this wasn't exactly good news. This was not a happy Thanksgiving gathering. As far as we know from previous scripture, there wasn't much love between David and the rest of his family. Remember way back in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, when David was anointed king by Samuel, it was only after all his older brothers were rejected as candidates for the job. David's father, Jesse, had forgotten about David when Samuel came to the house looking for God's choice to be their next king. Remember how Samuel had to ask, are these all your sons? And then Jesse snaps his fingers and remembers, oh yeah, David, the runt of the litter. He's still out in the fields tending the sheep. A few years later, when David's brothers are in Saul's army, David is bringing them provisions during the famous standoff between the Israelites and the Philistines with Goliath as their leader. And all he got from his brothers was the back of a hand and an angry rebuke, accusing him of bringing them food just so he could goof off from tending the sheep. So their arrival at the cave was not necessarily a show of loyalty or affection or commitment to David. They were probably just afraid that King Saul would take out his anger towards David on them. It was common practice to go after the enemy by wiping out their whole clan, mafia style. They might not have liked David, but they knew that the safest place they could find as his family was to be right next to him. I'm trying to imagine how David felt when they arrived. I'm sure he was conflicted. Sometimes when you're in a cave, you just want to be left alone. You want to be by yourself and still family is family. And there was some comfort in family being there even if it was a dysfunctional family like his. So they crawled into the cave with him. And as imperfect as it was, this family was a source of healing for David. You know, we all wish we had perfect families, perfect parents, perfect siblings, perfect children. But that's not going to happen. You can't choose your relatives. You're connected to a group of people for life, whether you like them or not, whether you like it or not. Sometimes a new beginning may involve God working to redeem the relationships you have in your family. When I was in high school, one of my uncles got into a disagreement with uh, his, the rest of his seven siblings over something I never knew what it was about. And through a series of events, he eventually cut off all ties with the entire family. And they didn't live for that far away from each other in Wisconsin. No contact with anybody for a number of years. And that bothered me because he... It was my favorite uncle. And then one summer, our house gets a phone call out of the blue. My uncle and his family were driving through Kentucky on vacation, and he had hurt his back badly. He needed emergency spine surgery. He needed a place for the family to stay and a good hospital. And my family at that time, we lived in Evansville, Indiana, right on the border with Kentucky, and we were the closest, best hospital. So they called my mom. Of course, she said, okay. And so they moved in with us. And that summer, I ended up taking care of three young nieces that I barely knew. But out of that crisis, healing took place, not just my uncle's back, but while jammed together in our house, family bonds were restored, eventually with the whole clan. 
Could your current struggle involve rebuilding something that is broken in your family? Could God be wanting to use your family to come alongside you? But David's families and brothers weren't the only ones who joined him in the cave. In verse 2, it says, All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. What a group. Look at who God brought him. Not the cream of the crop, but the dregs of society. Rejects, losers, dropouts, a motley collection of misfits. Look at the three words used to describe them. In distress, in debt, discontented. Distress means those who have experienced grief, who are at a point of anguish, who are feeling the pressures of life, similar to what David was actually going through. Debt could have been because of the heavy taxes, taxes levied by Saul, or that they had borrowed money against their property or even against their freedom in hopes of you know, pulling themselves up out of poverty, but having gambled on crops or livestock or whatever, they'd lost it all. Back then, if you were seriously in debt, you might have to go to work your debt off as an indentured servant, virtually a slave, perhaps for the rest of their life. So rather than face that, they fled and left their creditors holding the bag. I won't say anything about canceling student debt at this point, but I could probably do so. Anyway, discontented. It's a word that is formed by combining two Hebrew words that mean bitter soul. Bitter soul. So do you know that feeling? Are you nodding your head while you're listening? You're, you were looking for light at the end of the trouble tunnel, and it turned out to be the oncoming train. You thought you would find relief, but you didn't. Life has disappointed you. Your relationships have disappointed you. God has disappointed you. And you have disappointed yourself, be honest. Things aren't going the way you thought they would. That can become a bitter soul. These were the people God brought to David's side. Well, thanks a lot, God. God gave David the challenge of leading a troubled group of difficult people. The last thing David needs was more misfits because, you know, negativity is contagious. Negative people drag you down even more. Negativity clouds critical decision-making and blows everything out of proportion. Negativity makes faith flicker and places limits on God. Negativity keeps people from enjoying life. It's like being seasick for the whole journey of life. But all these discontented misfits pile into the cave of Adullam. Archaeologists think that they have actually discovered this particular cave. The only access is through a circular opening about seven feet high, and inside is a narrow low passage that leads to a small cave. And then a winding passage leads to a larger room about 5,000 feet in dimension. Other passages branch out in several directions and lead to other large rooms. There's enough room, enough space to accommodate about a thousand people at one time. But this cave of Adullam, it was no Holiday Inn Express. I'm sure it smelled like a locker room after a game in 90 degree weather. This was a mob of miserable humanity huddled in this cavern. David had the responsibility of turning that mob into an effective fighting force. Talk about a challenge. It's not just the Dirty Dozen, but the 400 hooligans. They were so tough, I think they'd make Tony Soprano sleep with a nightlight on. This dark cave became a training ground. David has to overcome his own personal discouragements and now must deal with over 400 people who have been through similar emotional ordeals. The cave is no longer David's personal refuge, but a training ground where God would prepare him to lead the roughest malcontents into battle. David became their den mother and their drill instructor. 
God brought him this bunch of unknowns, and David became sort of a Robin Hood character. His Sherwood Forest was the rugged Judean wilderness with its mountains, caves, and deep wadis. The same motley crew became the army that would be called David's Mighty Men of Valor. You see, not only did David's life turn around in the cave, but their lives turned around because of his leadership. When he got better, they got better. What did they need to turn around to have a new beginning? Well, first, a couple of things. First, they needed discipline. Discipline, like a good coach, David instilled in them a, self, a sense of self-discipline for the road ahead. Because when you're beaten down, it's easy just to let yourself go. You don't even get dressed in the morning. You don't even take a shower. That's what happens when people, when they get really beaten down and depressed. If you're going to get back on your feet, you're going to need personal discipline. My previous congregation, we had a lot of people who went through corporate layoffs and were unemployed, and they had a great need to have a sense of discipline because their normal routine was taken away from them. And without structure or routine, it's easy to just let yourself slide into depression. So we had a group where they could encourage each other. They had to get up at their usual time, get dressed, and get to work at a library or somewhere because their job was now finding a job. They had to work at finding a job as hard as they would work when they had a job. So it takes personal discipline to turn your emotions around. You don't feel your way into better actions. You act your way into better feelings. Let me say that again. You don't feel your way into better actions. You act your way into better feelings. Otherwise, life just becomes a downward spiral. The second thing they needed was direction, a sense of purpose, a cause, something to believe in. Something beyond themselves. You see, everyone needs to believe in something larger than self. Believe in your family. Believe in your country. Believe in a mission God has planted in your heart. You have to believe in something larger than yourself. Otherwise, people will sink into a cold despair, as the existential philosophers like Camus and Sartre discovered. The anarchists of today, those who believe in nothing, you know, that, that's just a road to total despair. You have to believe in there is a good God who was out there still at work. The 400 began to believe in a new direction for Israel under David's leadership. What was it? What is it that you actually believe in that brings meaning and value to your life? What calling has God given you? Finally, devotion. We don't know anything about the spirituality of the people of the cave, but we do know they started out discouraged. Discouraged people don't need critics. They hurt enough already. They don't need more guilt or criticisms to pile on. They need encouragement. They need a willing, caring, available someone, a confidant, a comrade in arms. And as David brought them military leadership, he also began to lead them back to God. They became the people God used to protect David and to support him when he actually became the king. So guess what? You don't have to be perfect to do the work of God. Isn't that a good gospel wabi-sabi moment? You don't have to be perfect to do the work of God. And you don't need to wait for the perfect time, for perfect people, or for perfect circumstances. Because if you do, you're going to wait a very long time because perfect people and perfect circumstances will never come. What we see in this motley crew in the cave of Adullam is actually an image of the people of God, the church. Ever heard someone say, I love God, but I hate the church. They go to church looking for God, and to their dismay, they find themselves surrounded by ordinary people, hypocrites and gossips and all the rest. Folks, don't ever apologize for the church, that it's full of imperfect people. 
David didn't apologize for his crew, the distress, the debtors, the malcontents of the cave of Adullam. Jesus ate with crooks and prostitutes. His disciples were stumble bums who could barely understand what Jesus was talking about. The church is not a building we go to. It's not a meeting we attend. The church is a collection of very imperfect people, saved by grace, whom God is welding together to stand shoulder to shoulder in every circumstance of life. Protecting, encouraging, supporting. The church is Adlam's cave, where if life has beaten you down, you can find that you're not alone. A place where you can reestablish trust in the Lord by coming alongside others who are also struggling to trust him. There will be times in each one of our lives when we need a refuge, a shelter, a harbor to pull into when we feel overwhelmed and blasted by the storm. The church is a place where people can come in and say, I'm sunk, I've had it. And you find shelter, a listener, someone who understands. The key for David, and I think the key for us today, is this. It's to see that God is at work through the people around us who want to rally to our support who want to rally to your cause. The message of Adam's cave is don't turn them away, all these imperfect people. When you are in a dark place, don't shut the door on the people God is sending to you. Be open. Be willing to receive from them, even if they're people who you think normally might be annoying or somehow difficult or who are imperfect. God has a way of using them. He has brought them to you for a reason. Don't turn them away. Don't turn away imperfect people. Let them minister to you. Don't let your pride get in the way of God's blessing. You know, pride is the number one thing that keeps people from succeeding. Pride is the number one thing that keeps people from succeeding. So don't let your pride get in the way of welcoming God's blessing in the form of imperfect people who want to come alongside you to help. Let them into your cave. Let that cave become a place of healing. And as you let them in, you will discover through God's people that God is still with you. Hey, have a great week. 